0: This is a production of Cornell University.
1: Yeah, get us started, Frank. It's uh, episode eleven. It, it goes fast. Episode eleven of the Turk Show this year in our fourth season.
0: So we're more than halfway. Yeah, more than halfway. Okay, so a great uh, a morning shot from uh, Jim Pavanetti uh, at, at um... oh gosh, Fairview Bear, right Airport. Fairview. Fairview. Sorry, that's right. I was going to say. I was going to say fairway and it's like fairview. Right. And Jimmy, Jim's done a great bunch of work on the golf course. A lot of renovation stuff really talks about the BMPs that they've included uh, in this. So always like uh, sharing an early morning picture. But you know, today, Carl, we're going to get talking about some things we don't always talk about, and a lot of it was spurred by last week. Some of the things Rich Buckley said to us about what's going on early season. Now, notice isn't a good picture. I took it off of a equipment technician's Twitter feed, and this is a, a bunch of uh, pieces of paper that you use to check sharpness on the mower with a magnet on it. So you can stick it in different places when you're working, so that you're not trying to pull it out of your pocket or grab it from somewhere else. This is, a, you know, a little a simple equipment technician hack, because really, you know, we don't talk about this a lot, but these are really important people on golf courses, right? I mean, I actually think if you put superintendents, you know, on the on on the hot seat once in a while and say, "Hey, who do you want? An assistant or a good equipment manager?" I think they'd probably take. Not that anything against good, solid assistants but setting a reel and setting these units up is so important to the overall performance of the golf course. Now, Rich said to us last week that early season anthracnose is is picking up. Now, you know, this only has one cause that we are stressing these plants. They they went into the winter stressed and they're coming out of the winter stressed. And remember early on, Carl, we said there wasn't any winter, which means a lot of places have had a lot of play. And the combination of you know, early season play, some already stressed grass is probably setting you up for, if you're getting it now, it's going to be a long season because, you know, I've been barking that, gosh, if your things don't look good now, it, it, the conditions are ideal in some ways, unless you're under a lot of stress. Now, thinking about anthracnose and mowing, thinking about anthracnose and traffic, the research is pretty clear that top dressing Uh, to protect the crowns of annual bluegrass is really critical. John Inguagiotto's work, there's been some follow-up work on amounts of sand and timing of sand and spring timing of sand growth, uh, of sand to really get in there and protect that canopy is really critical, right? If you're getting out of the gate, now with some rain coming, you're a little bit soft, right? You got the mower set, maybe a little aggressive because there's a lot of grass there and you want to get it off once you start doing that, you better have some sand there to protect those crowns and prevent anthracnose, right? Because again, uh, anthracnose is one of those diseases that you know starts foliar, and then if stress continues, it will become you know basal rot, and then once you rot the crown, you know you're done. You're just going to sit there and watch it look bad for a while because the plant has no ability uh, to regenerate tissue. And since we're talking about mowing. Brian Whitlark and John Daniels wrote a paper in the USGA green section a number of years ago that talked about the bed knife position on a, on a mower behind the center line of the reel. As soon as you start to move that bed knife position back, now sometimes that happens because you grind your reel so much, the diameter of the reel starts to shrink. When that happens, the only way to get the geometry in the reel to work right is to bring the bed knife angle up and back so you're moving it back which is allowing the reel to tip into the canopy right more aggressively and do some raking so you see here uh you know in this particular thing we're at the same height of cut but the behind center distance in one of the uh pictures brings you uh closer into the canopy you're getting actually below the mowing height depth because the reel is snip is getting into the canopy and raking it out. So the further the bed knife is back in the reel, the more that reel is pitched into the canopy, the more it's slapping and whacking that tissue and adding to some stress and even cutting a little bit lower. Now, mower manufacturers set these things out of the out of the shop different. I would check them when you get them. Not that everybody's getting a bunch of new mowers these days. They can't get them built, but when they can get them built, this is a one area where the John Deere uh, putting green mowers have the ability to get that um, bed knife closer to the center distance. It comes not as far behind the center distance. It gives you a little bit more flexibility now what is the value of this again we've talked about this before when you get behind too far the the more aggressive bed knife angle that tips behind you're tipping into the canopy more which means you're adding more stress we've played around with this many years ago i think i've done this work I think some of this work is 15, 16 years old now, where we set five mowers up, uh, flex 21s with the bed knife at different positions. Now, it took us a while in upstate New York to get anthracnose, but when we did have a finally get an anthracnose outbreak, we saw a very linear response in August and September that when it was dry and it was still warm back in these years and we had the more aggressive setting, we were getting more anthracnose the more aggressive the mower was set up. And we did this all year uh, on an annual bluegrass, bentgrass surface. Now, John Sorokin, Tom Nikolai, Aaron Hathaway many years ago with Corey Yurczyk at Michigan State took this work we started and went a little bit further looking at behind center distance, the impact on clipping collection and sand collection. So in very simple terms, the further back your bed knife is, the more sand you're going to pick up. (laughs) So if we're telling you to top dress, right, and we're telling you that's going to help you with the anthracnose, uh, but your bed knife is too far behind the center distance, you're going to be harvesting more sand. So this is again where some people uh, pivot to a John Deere machine, Uh, other people go and change the bed knife behind center distance now what's interesting here is green speed didn't change and clipping production clipping yield didn't change so if you think you're being more aggressive to get faster greens or you think you're being more aggressive to get more clippings and make faster greens the research does not bear out that's what's happening so listen carl this has been an early start and talk to bench benchmarking our mowers But I know you've got, you know, the bench heights and the things we set on the bench. You've got another look at benchmarking that is really interesting, looking at the operation as a whole and some of our successes uh, in our state park program. Take it away.
1: Yeah, I think, Frank, you know, it it makes a whole lot of sense with mower setups when you can put specific numbers to behind center distance. Uh, You know, that stuff with John Daniels, the USGA one said, you know, it's a 26% difference in, in height of cut. So I could say, oh, okay, you know, if I was setting it at 125, but my behind center distance was way off, I was actually cutting at 0.093. So that was some of the calculations I was doing, like, hey, I thought I was cutting at 125. Oh, my God, I'm under 100. Um, it's really good to have that benchmarking stuff and those actual numbers to compare. Okay, heck, now I can measure behind center distance on my reels. How do I compare, right? Uh, with some of our agronomic our practices, uh, I think we lack some of that data. Right. So the idea behind benchmarking is really just having some way to evaluate or check ourselves relative to some industry standard. Um, and so I you know I show data last week on John Rahm and and these PGA tour guys, you hear strokes game talked about all the time. That's their benchmarking tool, right? I know John Rahm is 2.4 strokes better than the average tour pro, right? That's how he's so good. And he gets there by being X strokes better per round in approach or driving and cutting. Uh, but that's their benchmarking standard uh, some of the benchmarking things we have maybe we don't have quite as much data for that in, in some of our agronomic practices um, Doug Lindy has worked a lot down in Delaware uh, trying to benchmark uh, golf course practices and, and maybe some of their resources that they have available to produce playing conditions uh, this is some data from back in New Zealand when he was doing this in the early 2000s basically went around a bunch of golf courses he asked him hey what's your revenue um, how how big is your green staff, what's your cutting height, uh, and then he surveyed sort of just weed populations in the fairways, and not surprisingly, the, re- the courses that have higher revenue have higher green staff, uh, they have lower cutting heights, right, because they can maintain that, and they have less weeds, uh, and so when I look at this as a golf course, maybe where I'm looking at and trying to find usefulness is where do I fit in, right? Where's my sort of bin, you know, and and when we think about labor is a huge, it's a huge deal having the necessary labor to produce playing conditions. Uh, You know, I was finding some of this data from the GCSAA uh, from last year's capital budget and labor survey. Okay, what's, what's the general uh, full-time FTE equivalents in the high seasons? If you have one to five FTEs in high season, you're actually in the bottom quartile of, of golf courses in the U.S., right? So that's Uh, Good to know, right? And if if your golf course manager, your GM, your greens committees are expecting really high conditions, and you're sort of in the bottom half or bottom quartile of labor, hey, maybe that's one thing you can use to to say, okay, I actually need two more people. I need 11 to be in that top 30%. And that might get us uh, around to cutting fairways more often, keeping up with the rough, being able to top dress every two weeks to get out of anthracnose. You just mentioned that, right, Frank? Um, So we've tried to do some of this with our state parks and and maybe some non-traditional metrics, pesticide use uh, and pesticide risk. I know that's maybe sort of a taboo term, saying the term pesticide risk, Um, but that's what we do with our our state park courses. We work with about 15 for over a decade now. Uh, And what we've done is we have a state average for those watching. The the, the black line is the state average of all those 15 courses. Uh, This is measured using the EIQ. We've got different regions, right? We've got courses in Long Island. That's the yellow bar up top. Upstate and blue, you know, Hudson Valley, Albany, and gray. What we have looked at over the years is hey, which courses use more, right? Okay, Long Island courses, uh, especially back in the, the mid sort of 20 teens, used a lot more pesticides. And it's not about like, hey, you got to use less. It's okay, why is that the case? Uh, it's probably extended growing seasons, right? They have a longer growing season, they have higher pest pressure. We've measured this now through some of our uh, disease models on, on the forecast website. There's also quality expectations, right? So Bethpage State Park has high, high expectations, Montauk Downs, right? The golfers down there expect a little bit more, that drives resource use up. Um, so it's understanding here's why you're above average. And similarly with upstate courses, hey, here's why you're below average. And you see actually over the years, we're sort of seeing uh, all of those regions sort of come together a little bit more in the data, especially the last five or six years. And a lot of that is from them figuring out, okay, here's where I can reduce and hey, I'm still getting the quality. Uh, and now we've got data, Frank, from um, from some courses across the nation. We've got an average now that, that we look at, you know, 260 in this metric. Not that that means anything to anybody, but 260 is the national average. Our state pork courses are, are under 100 on average. So that's good to say, hey, we've worked with them a lot on pesticide risk and trying to reduce that. And hey, it's good to know that, that we're below the national averages. Uh, and so we, we do this with fertilizer use as well. Um, So we can look at the GCSAA data again is it's a good way to benchmark some resource use on golf courses we got the northeast courses from that recent data on the left our state park courses on the right right we use uh, less fertilizer the goal is not to use way way less than them it's just to sort of figure out hey here's why we're here's where we're in the ballpark okay we're half a pound less on fairways and our goal is actually to figure out what's the least we can do while maintaining those playing conditions and and what we've seen in the last couple of years with increased traffic, especially on T's and fairways, is, hey, maybe we're pushing the bottom level of that. And maybe we actually need to come back up and get closer to those regional averages, right? And there's probably a reason why they're, they're regional averages, is they probably work pretty good. Um, so using that as, as sort of context, and that's why I put this quote up on the screen, context is clarity, sort of figuring out you know, when you can have these benchmarking numbers, I think it's nice to sort of get the lay of the land, right? I've had a picture of of the land at Dinsmore, which is a really cool old golf course uh, down in Hudson Valley. Uh, and the idea is not necessarily to the, be the best, right? I mentioned John Rahm and PGA Tour guys, they're trying to be the best of the world. With golf courses, right, you're not resourced uh, to be the best for every golf course. And you're really just trying to figure out where you fit in, right? It's, it's about fitting in. And again, with our state park work, we, we try and figure out, hey, where do we fit in in the local golf community? So this is when we pull data from our friends at Pellucid, right? We look at Uh, the facilities that are around each golf course. Here's some data from Shenango Valley. Um, So rural upstate New York. uh, And when we look at the courses around them, they sort of, they tend to be stratified in the, uh, what we call public medium, public low price points, right? So a lot of the golfers in that area, you know, they're not demanding high-end public golf. They're just demanding affordable golf. And and that gives us some information about how we want to maintain the the property. Hey, maybe they don't need perfectly manicured uh, fairways. They don't need to have the rough fertilized. They just care about the greens, right? So it gives us some information on how we want to manage. And then you go to a place like Bethpage, right? And 65% of the courses within, uh, I think this is five kilometers or 10 kilometers of Bethpage, they're private, right? So you're going to have a higher end audience. They're expecting, you know, well-manicured fairways, tightly mowed, right? 100% turf quality, real dense, nice ball light um, so trying to figure out benchmarking, not only in our resource use, but hey, what do our uh, golfers expect from us, um, and, and trying to work backwards from that. So I keep talking talk about this with Mike Fidanza a couple of weeks ago, sort of measuring these outcomes. That's why I like benchmarking, Frank. It gives you that sort of that bar that, that you can be around. Okay, can I be a little bit below? Can I be a little bit above? Um, I think that's really useful and can, can help drive decision-making.
0: Yeah. And I got to tell you, Carl, you know, you, everybody's heard, especially as long as we've been doing the show, right. We started it during COVID. And so we lost a lot of labor. I mean, we weren't sure we could work. When I look back at some of those talks, we, we didn't know if we could work. A lot of people said, wow, I'm actually getting a lot done with golfers here or wow. Mm-hmm. I'm actually getting, I, I didn't do that. And it doesn't seem to matter right and i think okay. sometimes we 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 internalize i got to do more with less right and yes. the reality is i think to your point about the bottoming out maybe of the nitrogen when i see that six, 58% of the golf courses in america have less than 10 people full time at peak season uh, that means we're already, I think, uh, operating at a pretty high efficiency. If you just go to less than 15, you've got three quarters of the golf courses in America yeah. have less than 15 people at at, fu- at, at you know, a full season. Now, a full season in the desert and the South is different than, you know, a full, you full know, peak season in the North. But I think, Carl, this is a very interesting number one piece of data to look at labor. Because as you said, if I got more guys, that means I got more hands for weed whackers around the trees. I can rake the bunkers three times a week versus just once a week. And I think really good golf course superintendents do talk to the people about these kinds of things. And even one step better, when you get into corporate golf and you go to Troon or you go to Kemper Properties, they got this dialed in. They don't spend a dime more than they have to relative to the results they're gonna get. The return on that investment Right with a higher round of golf, you know, paying more for a round of golf. Right, dynamic pricing when the demand goes up. You got a nice place. You're getting more money. You better have the resources. And my sense is those places are not afraid to spend that money, Carl. And it mm-hmm. seems to pay off in the markets they're in. Anything you want to wrap up here? Since I added some color, are ready to move on.
1: Uh, yeah, I'll just comment, Frank, that that those bigger organizations because they're looking at the bottom line a lot more they have that information on, hey, if we buy another pallet of X, uh, what does that get us in return on investment, right? And um, I, I think probably a lot of the individual courses that are privately owned or owned by a group of members, maybe don't look at that quite enough. And uh, that's, that's like 101 running businesses, right? Big corporations, <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing, right? So uh, just a comment that I think that's that sort of standardized data is, is probably important to have.
0: Okay, well, speaking of benchmarking, let's look at where the temperatures were last week. And it was a cooler week, right? After 20 degrees above normal, like I said, normal or a little bit below normal is gonna feel cold. And in fact, it really did. You And essentially, we've hit a bit of a stall here in many parts of the Northeast uh, from a temperature perspective. We were talking about it on the conference call this morning and it has this weird feeling to it, the growing season. The numbers say we're ahead, even collecting since March 15th, not grabbing that heat at the end of February or much of the warm winter. We're saying since March 15th, we're close to two weeks ahead, at least a week to two weeks ahead. But, and you see it in the forsythias, they're done in many areas in upstate New York. And I'm not seeing crabgrass anywhere. We're going to chat with Matt Elmore tomorrow on the grounds episode of the turf show and talk of course, more in depth about that. Now, it was actually relatively good rainfall wise, uh, just about everybody got a half an inch. Uh, a lot of people got an inch or more, and a bunch of people got three and four inches uh, through the Connecticut Valley, uh, out by stores, Connecticut, tons of rain. But then as you get out to the east end, out to the Cape and the islands out there, Long Island, uh, much less rainfall, uh, less than a half an inch in those areas. But overall, uh, we're expecting more rainfall coming and some cooler temperatures. So cooler temperatures, uh, below normal temperatures, right? Instead of being in the mid-50s, we're going to be in the low 50s to upper 40s, um, and and, and rainfall is going to come through again. Friday, Saturday looks like a big hit, And then it's sort of cloudy and rainy for the next week. I think Art described it as, you know, good weather for a duck uh, moving forward. Now, one of the things we we have heard about is another one of these early spring diseases. And this is where we're getting all screwed up. It's like, man, I think I'm ahead. But whoa, I got pink snow mold. Uh, Oh, I think I'm ahead. Oh, I got white tea patch. Oh, I think I'm ahead. I got early season anthracnose. These sorts of problems really start to wreak havoc and make you question some of the things that you're doing. There's a lot of products available for Whiteia patch. This is a Rhizoctonia organism. So anything that works well on the Rhizox is pretty good. I will put a plug in for uh, Polyoxin D, which is Affirm or Endorse. That's a really good Rhizoc product. It actually has that sort of niche area. So if you have a yellow patch, if if c- the conditions are going to be conducive, this typically is considered a cosmetic problem, but if conditions persist, you will get pitting and, and depressions in the rings from this organism. So again, you know, early season problems that we don't, don't often worry about because we think we're going to get growth on the other side. Looks like those problems are getting worse. Rainfall comes. I wanted to put even, even though I got some crappy pictures here, I saw some collar dam work going on. A lot of times, uh, collars start to build up in their height and 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 get higher, build up uh, either the green, you know, they're getting top dressed differently, they're getting ro- not rolled as much, and you get these collar dams in certain places that hold water on a green, and if uh, especially if it's in a low spot on a green, this adds to a lot of problems, so getting in there, sod cutting, taking it out, a good simple thing to help your cleanup passes survive the growing season ahead is getting the water off of there now the soil temperatures you know we were talking 50s and 60s last week and now we're talking well and they had in the 30s but in the 40s through much of the region and even just the 50s are confined to just along the coast and further south by virginia when you got to go to virginia now to get 55 degrees at two inches so again if you were running out there early you saw the warm temperatures and you made your applications early you're going to sit there and stare at that for a couple of weeks and that might be a wasted herbicide or fertilizer application with the conditions we're under right now so let's get back to the anthracnose thing because once we start talking about growth now we're talking about the inability to keep up with the traffic and stuff that you're doing. Last week, we talked about stress, Carl. And we said, hey, you know, stress your plants. You could dry them out a little bit. And I think you and I were corrected pretty quickly by Dr. Mm-hmm. Buckley, who said, whoa, that's assuming you got plants that can do those things. Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking about intentionally imposing stress on your playing surfaces, there are course enormous numbers of benefits you get from the variety of ways we can impose stress from mowing lower and verticutting and rolling to, to moisture stress like we talked about last week. Now, when we think about imposing stress on annual bluegrass, which is just getting going now, right? We know that it's coming into that time where seed head production is going to be at peak. Now, when that happens, a lot of the resources that plant used to use for vegetative growth and root growth stops. So, you know, that plant is triggered now to produce that flowering stalk. That is the end. As soon as that plant produces that flowering stalk and you mow it off, that tiller is dead. So you get this natural waning period on the other side of a seed head flush Mm -hmm. that I think we got to be careful on putting the stress on. The other thing I'm starting to see, just like we predicted, is a lot of overregulation. If you're not tracking your growth and you're saying, wow, it's the end of April, it was just warm, I'm getting buckets like crazy, let me go out with my proxy primo, boy, it seems like it's growing, let me get the rate up, boom, and now you're overregulated because it's cold. You're overregulated because you got too much traffic. So you're just not able to grow. So let's remind everybody the great work that our colleagues at Rutgers have done in elucidating the impact of a variety of practices on basal rod anthracnose. And what they concluded clearly was you can mow low, <laughs> you can roll, you can get fast greens, but you better feed those things. Because as soon as you start skipping on nitrogen, the amount of basal rod anthracnose that you see in that stand goes up exponentially in some cases. You really start to see that surge when growth rate is dropping off. So nitrogen at this time, if it will respond to it, will certainly give you some benefits. Now, you got to remember, if we're averaging temperatures 55 degrees, the cool season grass growth potentials only at 40%. So you're not even operating at full vibration yet in your plants growing and you're beating the hell out of them and you're top dressing them and you're playing golf on them like crazy and the temperature's not on your side and you got overregulation and you got traffic and you're wondering why we got some of these early season problems. Let's just remind everybody that when we say low nitrogen, we mean, you know, below three pounds of N. Once you get from three to six pounds, we call that high nitrogen, but it's not high nitrogen for the actual growth of a grass plant. You can put up to 16 pounds of N per thousand per year before you max out clipping production. So we are purposely keeping these plants in a nitrogen starved condition, right? Nitrogen is not as prevalent in the environment other than in the atmosphere. So to plants, it's a limiting nutrient. So we have been taught to limit this nutrient, but we've also been taught that we don't want to get you know too out of whack here because it leads to anthracnose. Now, the other thing we've learned about growth rate is the higher you mow, the slower it grows. Hutting greens grow more rapidly than collars that are a little bit higher and right next door. And so consequently, growth regulators applied at the same rates and frequencies over these two surfaces will over-regulate the collars. And then guess what else we do to the collars? We turn the mowers on the collars. I don't care how many flat pieces of fence you put there, you're still putting traffic and wear and tear in those things. So growth rate is really impacted now. Now, I dug this up from 40 years ago. Clark Drossel has been retired now for a number of years. When he did his PhD at Penn State in 1981, he looked at the effect of cutting height and nitrogen rate on green speed on ball roll distance. He mowed at a tenth of an inch and three sixteenths, or one eighty-seven, one hundred eighty-seven thousandths of an inch, right? And he went from one pound of N to six pounds of N. He got a green speed at a tenth of an inch at two pounds of N that was a little bit uh, right at ten feet. When he went up to six pounds of N, that green speed only went down six inches. Now. We're not doing the same things we did 40 years ago. But we're trying to make the point that if you're struggling with a lot of these things that are impacted by low growth rate, don't be afraid to add some nitrogen in small amounts. You don't want to add like, oh, a half a pound of granular, but maybe a tenth of a pound, two tenths of a pound. If you're normally a tenth of a pound, maybe two tenths of a pound might be good to go in this early season to get it going. Now, we've learned from Doug Soldat's work and Bill's work at Wisconsin that traffic reduces growth. When you have traffic, you're not getting as much top growth, right? That is having a big impact on it. Now, the last part of this, Carl, is green speed. So you get mm-hmm. traffic and you want fast green. Scott and Ivan wrote this article in the T to Green, the Met Superintendent's T to Green, a couple of years ago, Escalating Green Speeds and Todd Quint- Quintno, just wrote another article in the most recent version of the TD Green uh, from an architect's perspective. He attended a conference out in New England with a bunch of architects and did some survey work. And first off, in the first article by Scott Niven, he was listing the medium speed in the metropolitan New York area based on a a survey was 11 feet 3 inches. A slow green was about 10 feet feet nine feet nine inches and a fast green was considered 12 feet six inches based on a survey of the metropolitan superintendents now just a reminder scott mingay one of the research managers at the usga involved with the development of the gs3 they did a gps study a while ago looking at various green speeds and the actual amount of time that it took to play so when you start getting above 10 and a half Uh, feet on green speeds you're looking at about 25 to 30 minute increases in the time it takes to play around the golf or at least two minutes per putting surface uh based on the uh how the time it takes to play um you know play around the golf now my question is is the stress worth it all the time right so that survey that todd Quitno did uh, asked a bunch of architects, when you're designing a green complex, how do you prioritize the following elements of green design? And they asked them to select the top five. The first two by far were pinnable area and drainage functional performance. The next one was blending into surroundings. The next one was size and area and puttability, likely uh, green speed. So it looks like pinnable area and drainage, two things we care about, are on architects' minds. Asking those architects for ideal green speed, at least 52% of them said 10 to 11 feet. An interesting full third said nine to ten feet now you take this in contrast with what superintendents say and you begin to get at the root of some of this problem and this is really going to drive everybody crazy who drives the bus on green speeds? when you asked architects they through to the superintendents right under the bus 44 percent of the architects said golf course superintendents are driving green speeds And followed closely by green committees at 38%, right? At 38%. And then the golfers themselves or governing bodies are less than 10%. So you can see the big impact that design is having. Now, Carl, as I wrap it up, um, here's another little piece from Todd's article. Easy locator has the ability to determine pinnable areas based on the size of your putting surface, the slope of the green, and the speed of the green. So, here's a little exercise where they looked at the same putting surface at three different green speeds. At seven feet green speed, which is presumably really low, 75% of that putting surface is available for pins for cup couple locations. As soon as you go to 10 feet, now you're down to 40%. And when you go to 12 feet, you've got essentially 3% of that putting surface less the, left the cup. Now, Carl, what is the interesting thing that I know you will comment on here as we, as we wrap it up, as we're over the time, go figure, um, we're by ourselves and we're over the time. You said and showed on our state park golf courses, when we have less area on the putting surface, that drives up our traffic rate. So green speed also increases focused traffic to the places where you can put the whole location that was an interesting like whoa that is a big deal so yeah. i think as a golfer i know you like fast greens but this has to concern you a little bit
1: yeah it, exactly what i was thinking about frank we've done some organic matter sampling and, and some of the new om246 stuff in the top two centimeters and we were finding that at a golf course the bigger greens have more organic matter that's because traffic is more spread out and then you have smaller greens. You know, we mentioned Shenango State Park. Larry's got one green that is literally a fifth of the size of his other green. He's got the smallest green in all of the state park system and the largest green in all the state park system, and they have different organic matter rates because they're different traffic. And you look at, at those charts from Easy Locator, you know, when I, when I lose 35% of my pinnable area, I'm effectively shrinking that green and now I'm focusing all that traffic in those areas. Uh, yeah, so there's probably agronomic issues there. When I think of it as a golfer and, and I talk to set up people like the NYSGA, they would rather have some, some slower green speeds because they can utilize more of the putting surfaces like the architect intended, getting it closer to ridges and, and having some sloped putts uh, that are at least uh, manageable from a golfer's perspective instead of being stuff that's going to roll off the green. So uh, yeah, you know, the, the green speed, that's, that's sort of the danger of benchmarking, right, Frank, is when you mm-hmm. get into green speeds and 11 is considered medium man 11 is fast green and like you said that's going to drive up pace of play pretty quickly for your average membership i would think
0: so. very very interesting start to the season with the uh, starting and stopping and 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 you know buckets of grass and now you're staring at it and if you have as we talked about last week and just to wrap it up stressed greens now it's not going to get any better unless you make some adjustments. And and I think the final point is, if you are growing, getting the sand in there uh, is going to help with that early season anthracnose as well. Now, if you're not growing, all you're doing is throwing the sand on top and you set your mower wrong, you're going to pick most of it up. So that's the lesson for today. It looks like we're going to need a little more patience moving forward, Carl.
1: Yeah. And and so tomorrow we'll have Matt Elmar on from Rutgers and we'll talk to Matt about, hey, weed development, where is it at this year? Uh, with this sort of stop-and-start uh, weather we've had in the Northeast. So we're looking forward to that. We'll probably chat some crabgrass tomorrow. Uh, so everybody, we'll see you tomorrow for Episode 12. Uh, for now, take care. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks,
0: Carl. This has been a production of Cornell University. On the web at cornell.edu.